Welcome everybody. Abraham Lincoln. 
It's a one-stop shop.
back in the kitchen, cause the winter gets through and need to eat. I must it. Fix me collard greens and cornbread and rice. Chicken breast, oxtails on the side. That's what I'm talking Eagle about. Eagle on the get my bitly ready, cause when it get through and need to ride. Come on! Dr. West, count the money, count the money, come back and tell us what you raised. We had to find another deal. I got some people there looking for some best. First, God got to get the praise. Come on, y'all. See, there's an old saying. When the praises go up, you get the blessing coming down. I got some people in the church. God Almighty, look at them, they're messing around. Come on, come on. Woo. Hell no. To the no, no, no. Hell to the no. I got people in the church smoking weed, drinking whiskey, they drinking a lot of gin. What you say? I got the preacher with the night prayer meeting, drawing around, can I get an amen? Come on! Early Sunday morning, about a quarter and a half past the ten. Yeah! I got some people, they coming off the street, God Almighty, look at them, they strolling in. They need help! They laying at the altar, they confess the sin, their sin. Come on, wait! Time is here Monday morning, they doing the same thing again. Hypocrite, hypocrite. Hell no. Come on. To the no, no, no. Hell to the no. Hell to the no. To the no, no, no. Listen. Got kids dropping out of school, talking about they don't want to learn. Yet they're standing on the corner rolling blunts, talking about come on, let's burn. Y'all better get back to school. I got kids walking up and down the street, pants hanging down around their knees. What them pants talking about that they're looking for a job? When I see them get a book, I said, please. Talk to them. See, all they ever talk about, brag about who got the biggest and the baddest guns. Trying to see the copper with the rubber top. They dropping the gun, they want to run. Put them guns down. Now the sheriff got them locked up. <laughs> they're sitting in the county jail. It's a shame. I heard the mama, she was crying all night.
song says, when you can't see your way and you feel that you've gone astray, doing all you know how to do. Remember, God has not forgotten you. Hold your head up and be true to him. And he'll open doors for you.
Good morning, Labor and Love fans. This is the B, and this is the Labor and Love show. And we had it for openers there. We had kind of a survey about the music. Different genres. Last one was beautiful gospel rendering of God will open doors. Boy, that Bishop Bullwinkle, na na and the na na. People who don't want to learn. People who want guns and slow them down. Boy, that Brittany Howard with her beautiful love song. I was you. Started out with, befittingly enough, lift every voice and sing. And we're coming to you from Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street. This is where we tell you how it is. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table, that is, where you work. You're on the menu. Sorry to say. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Only a waste of time. Well, okay, what we do here is let you know who's pulling your strings, how you can avoid that. And the bottom line is, of course, organize. Organize. Every week we bring you labor music, labor information. Labor history, labor opinion, past, present, and future, working movement. Okay. Pity the Nation by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Pity the Nation whose people are sheep and whose shepherds mislead them. Pity the Nation whose leaders are liars, whose sages are silent, and whose bigots haunt the airwaves. Pity the Nation that raises not its voice, except to praise conquerors, proclaim the bully as hero aims to rule the world by force and by torture. Pity the nation that knows no other language but its own and no other culture but its own. Pity the nation that its money and treats its people too well fed. Pity the nation. Oh, pity the people who allow their rights to erode 
freedoms to be washed away. My country, tears of thee. His contemporaries Norman Getty, of course, was famously the owner founder of City Lights Books. One of his colleagues was a poet, Gary Snyder. Gary Snyder wrote a famous poem about evolution and how it goes. I wanted to get included with our credos this week because it is so fitting. Revolution in the Revolution in the Revolution by Gary Snyder. Country surrounds the city. Back country surrounds the country. From the masses to the masses, most revolutionary consciousness is to be found. Starting out, starting us out with um, a nature poem. Started over again. Revolution in the Revolution in the Revolution by Gary Snyder. Country surrounds the city, the back country surrounds the country. From the masses to the masses, the most revolutionary consciousness is to be found among the most ruthlessly exploited animals, trees, water, air, gases. Pass through the stage of the dictatorship of the unconscious before we can hope for the withering away of the states and finally arrive through communionism. The capitalists and imperialists are the exploiters, the masses are the workers, and the party is the communist. The civilization is the exploiter, the masses is nature, and the party is The abstract, rational intellect is the exploiter. The masses is the unconscious. The party is the yogin. Power comes out of the seeds. Capitalists and imperialists are the exploiters, he writes, not the masses. 
workers and the party. Revolution. Okay, every week we bring you labor news and um, go to background music today is uh, Miles Davis and his album Kind of Blue. membership has dropped low even though 200,000 more people join the union of course the reason that the rate percentage rate going because more and more people are more people are willing to take the non-union movement is growing absolutely but as a percentage of the actual working class its share is shrinking the supreme court could gut the right to strike the case that has widespread implications for unions all the way all across the country. Lewis, the interviewer, speaking to Cape Bronfenberg. The Supreme Court has just heard oral arguments in Glacier Northwest Incorporated versus the International Brotherhood of what question does the case put to the court? Kate Brunnen, Bronfenbrenner, Kate Bronfenbrenner, labor researcher. She says, there's two questions. The employer sued the union for torturous destruction of company property and is going after the Teamsters. <clears throat> basically going after the government, arguing under the ta takings clause that it has to be reimbursed for the property. Basic case is that when workers go on strike, by definition, the purpose of the strike is to cost the employers something economically. Open quote. Employer. harmed in some way, the way the employer harms the workers by locking them out or by pressing them on the job. Only labor law balances employer rights and union rights. Employers can lock workers out and unions can go on strike. An employer
employers lock workers out, it hurts workers. And when unions go on strike, the idea is that it would hurt employers. If workers strike at any employer, if they don't do their work, most employers are going to lose some money. Glacier Northwest's argument is that cement workers going on strike caused some cement to harden when they walked off the job. Even though workers left the trucks running in order to try to protect the cement, the company didn't get the trucks to take care of it in time. So the cement hardened. The company suffered losses, and because of these losses, the company is suing the union for destruction of property. The NLRB ruled that it was the company that committed an unfair labor practice by retaliating against the union for going on strike. It has to go before the full board, but it has been declared a legal strike by the NLRB. Historically, the federal government does not interfere in NLRB cases. Courts do not interfere in NLRB. Seems like an important question, Lewis says. The important question is whether employers can go to the courts if they get an answer they don't like from the NLRB. Ron von Brenner says, the NLRB is empowered under the preemption doctrine with determining whether union conduct is protected by federal labor law, NLRA. Also decide whether the labor law preempts the application of the other law. In this case, the company's trying to get around that, trying to take law to the regular courts out of Of course, companies can go to the courts, but whether they win in the courts is an entirely different question. You can see Amazon and Starbucks challenging every single decision made by the NLRB, challenging the legitimacy. Start to have very active right-wing judiciary starts to turn over precedent, NLRB decisions, court cases supporting them will be in a very dangerous range. Great risk that will happen in this case, and if it does, union workers will have a very limited right to strike. So far, the court has recognized only one exception of the preemption doctrine employers to go to state courts, and that is, and it's kind of strange, only for extreme cases that are, quote, so deeply rooted in local feeling and responsibility that the absence of compelling congressional direction, we could not infer that Congress deprived the states of Up until now, the court has defined extreme cases as things like picket line violence, intimidation, extortion. But that did not exist in this case. The 
court has never applied that strike cost the employer money. Strike is not protected, which is what Glacier Northwest is arguing. Any kind of strike, I mean, what do you think? Let's say, let's put it to you out there in the audience. Any kind of strike is going to hurt the employer. That's the whole point of it. By withholding your labor, you want that employer to hurt, so he, he hires you back and gives you some of the concessions you've asked for. Imagine a UPS strike. If the UPS strike moved forward and it costs UPS money because packages aren't delivered, some of the packages contain goods that cannot survive in the heat or the cold and are damaged. Theoretically, UPS could hold the Teamsters liable for that. Unions, because of the cost of these lawsuits and the possible liability, then be very afraid to go on strike, and the right to strike would be severely limited. One thing the unions are saying is that this is, this they could say, this is political. And if we, in response to their decisions, create more chaos in the economy, strike more, engage in community campaigns, and get the public rallied about this, then the judiciary might feel the pressure, or the executive branch will put pressure on the judiciary. At any rate, check it out. It's on... Uh, in these times, under the labor heading, Supreme Court could gut the right to strike. All right. Take a look at our uh, worldwide radio labor. Radio labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, February 3rd, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a special program on the severe shortage of teachers in the world and the underfunding of public education systems and singing. Come on now, people, let's get on the boat. Let's work together. This is Radio Labor. We at Education International are launching our new global campaign. Go public, fund education. David Edwards is the General Secretary of Education International. EI is the global union for teachers and other education workers. It represents some 30 million educational staff in 172 countries. In Canada, EI affiliates include the Canadian Teachers Federation, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, and three unions in Quebec. 
EI is renewing its commitment to quality education with a new campaign entitled Go Public Fund Education. We are facing unprecedented challenges around the world. Education is at risk. The alarming and growing global teacher shortage is threatening the right to education everywhere. This shortage denies our students their right to learn. It denies them the bright futures they deserve. This shortage has a major impact on teachers and their workloads. Resignation rates are skyrocketing. New teachers are leaving the profession, and the number of people who want to join our profession is in dramatic decline. The widespread policies driving uncompetitive pay, unsustainable workloads, and growing precarious work makes it impossible to recruit and retain the teachers we need. The solution to the worldwide shortage of teachers is clear. We need to fund public education systems, invest in teachers, guarantee labor rights, and ensure good working conditions. We need manageable workloads and competitive salaries. We need to value teachers, respect teachers. We need to ensure that they are central to decision-making, and we need to trust their pedagogical expertise. The United Nations Transforming Education Summit of 2022 was a first step to build the political will to prioritize education, increase education financing, and invest in teachers. The summit called on governments to invest more and more equitably in education. We now have a key opportunity to organize and mobilize as unions. We need to mobilize at the local, national, regional, and global levels so that all governments commit to funding public education. We need to make sure we have the working conditions to teach and our students have the environments they need to learn. As the global voice of the teaching profession, we will mobilize for quality public education as a fundamental human right and a public good. We must fully fund public education systems and empower, respect, and pay the teachers and education workers who are the beating heart of education. The need for free public education is apparent all over the world. In the United States, the richest country in the world, there is a severe funding crisis. I talked to Stacy Pelica about the situation in the U.S. Ms. Pelica is the director of research for the National Education Association. The NEA represents 3 million education workers in the country. I asked her if the U.S. has a teacher shortage, and if so, why? We certainly do, and I would say that it's not only a teacher shortage, but it is a broad school staff shortage. So we're seeing shortages of what we call education support professionals, so folks who drive buses, work in food service, paraeducators, school counselors are also experiencing shortages, social workers, administrators, it's across the board. In terms of why, I think one important thing is that this predates the pandemic. So when we look at the data, we start to see that job openings are outpacing hires as early as 2017, so well before the pandemic, and that's across the entire education sector in the U.S. We're also seeing that the percent of educators who quit each month has been increasing steadily since 2009. So clearly this is something that didn't come about because of the pandemic, but the pandemic certainly exacerbated it. In terms of the pandemic itself, we have about 250,000 fewer people working in the local public education sector. So that would be our K-12 schools primarily than we did prior to the pandemic. So we, we certainly did see a pandemic effect. 
But going back to the broader issue of why, I think number one is just pay. It's a pretty straightforward answer. And survey after survey, we see that people are considering leaving the profession because of pay, that pay is the thing that would keep them in the profession if it increased, that people are wary to enter teacher preparation because of pay, and that parents are concerned about their children selecting teaching as a career because of the pay. So at this point, according to the Economic Policy Institute, the wage gap between teachers in the U.S. and comparably educated professionals is 23.5%. So we have this growing and very large gap in terms of pay. A couple of the other issues, working conditions, clearly one of those big issues certainly became more of a challenge during the pandemic in terms of maintaining the health and safety of our educators and our students. We have extremely high rates of job-related stress among teachers in the U.S., so twice as many teachers reported frequent job-related stress than general people in the public who are working, according to a RAND survey. So we have very high rates of job-related stress. We have a lot of political issues in the U.S. that are affecting schools, so teachers are experiencing challenges to how they teach, what they teach, and then other issues like during the pandemic, masking in the classroom. We have a policy environment that is really focused on standardized testing right now, which has led to less freedom for teachers to shape their own curriculum and what they teach in the classroom and how they teach. Going back to the pay thing, we don't adequately supply our schools. So teachers are spending an average of around $500 a year on supplies because they don't have enough copier paper or markers or other things that they need to adequately do their jobs. And then this issue really compounds itself. So now that we have shortages, we're seeing that people are even more stressed out because they have to cover for the people who are not there anymore. So if, if someone is out or someone leaves their position, everyone else in that school has to try and cover that class. So that means that people aren't getting their prep periods, which is making the working conditions even worse and people even more stressed out. So it's a really complex issue, but it's very clear that we do have a shortage right now. It must hurt to become a teacher and want to be a teacher and then find out that you're disrespected, you don't have the resources, you're not fully paid. What is happening to these people? It's really heartbreaking because we hear over and over again that people want to be teachers, they love working with their students, they love helping students learn, and they love working in schools for the most part. But when you're confronted with political challenges in some communities, it's you know, your neighbors being angry at you, you're confronted with students who, you know, the entire country and world has been through a traumatic event over the last few years. So, we, you know, students who have been home for a few years, they need to catch up on social skills. They would need to catch up on academics. They also need a lot of social emotional support. They are also hurting. And then you don't have the staffing necessary to help achieve that. So you as a teacher are trying your best to do many different things at the same time, and you don't have the support that from the system that you need to achieve that. You don't have enough counselors in your school or social workers or psychologists. Our education support professionals, I don't want to understate how important they are in this equation, so you may not have enough paraeducators to help support your classroom. Your students may not have that regular bus driver that they got used to seeing every morning who can kind of flag issues for you and, and help be that other supportive person who is in that child's life. 
and it just weighs on people. The the fact that all of that is happening, and then on top of that, there's this this message in the U.S. that somehow teachers are to blame for closing schools during the the pandemic and the loss of student learning. And in fact, that was a, that was based in health and safety. And schools did not close. They closed to in-person instruction. Teachers were still working. They were working from home. They were doing everything they could to help students stay on track during the pandemic. And they were also taking care of their own children often at home and helping those children learn. So I don't think you can understate the amount of work that our educators have done over the last few years. And to finish that phase of history and have people blaming you for something is, I can't even imagine how frustrating it must be and then not to receive the support you need to recover from that. I am not surprised when I see these figures on frequent job-related stress. The way it works is that RAND does a survey of, just general survey of, of working adults in the U.S., and then they do a survey of teachers. And I think a lot of people would say, oh, my, my life has been stressful over the last few years. This has been stressful for me. But it, it's not the level of stress we're seeing among teachers that is just so much higher and that there aren't adequate supports to help that, that instead you, you know, you're in a job where often you don't have your prep period, you might not have time to eat lunch or use the bathroom more than once a day, you're getting asked to purchase your own supplies. That, that message is not one that would make people want to choose that career. You can hear an extended version of my interview with Ms. Pelica on the Radio Labor website at radiolabor.net. Now here is the British singing group, The Workers.
And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. our radio labor segment <clears throat> this is how a teacher feels when you wake up beating a criminal Oop. baby cut that thing off I hear it I ain't going to work today, I know. Call my job. Tell the boss I won't be in. I said, call my job. Tell the boss I won't be in. Oh, you can tell him I'm sick. But I just had too much weekend. On Saturday, I caught the horses. And today, I got a thousand bucks. I said, Saturday, I caught the horses. And today, I got a thousand bucks. Oh, you look so good to me this morning, darling. Well, I ain't thinking about getting up. After Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I don't want to go to work on Monday. I said, after Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you know I don't want to go to work on Monday. After that long weekend, darling, I don't want to do a thing but lay around. Take the phone off the hook, put a note on the door too. I don't want to do a thing, but spend this time with you. Call my job, 
Okay, there's Albert King. First, he wants you to call his job and tell the boss that he's in, and then he changes his mind. On a more serious note, however, talking about schools and teachers, people like Governor DeSantis of Florida now have decided they're going to decide what curriculum will be taught and what shouldn't. Critical race theory, CRT, which simply recognizes the fact that there's racism, institutionalized racism in the United States, and that it's been a part of our history since the very beginning. Not putting blame on white people, just pointing out what is. People really think that children of color are dumber than white kids? People really believe that? You can't believe that if you ever worked with kids. Look around you. Look around you at the society, Governor DeSantis. Why is one race leading in all the statistics, poverty, Broken families, lack of opportunity. Why is that? Is that because those people are dumber than white people? No. At any rate, so Governor DeSantis is putting himself in this situation. Here's here's a guy named Tom Paxton. Pete Seeger, of course, singing about what did you learn in school. This is what the governor wants us to do. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free. That's what the teacher said to me. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? 
What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. Okay, this is what... Governor DeSantis and his ilk want us to learn in school. And uh, I have control over that. Florida, Arizona, the teaching of Chicano studies was outlawed. Schools in Tucson, Arizona. So they're taking piece of history, the history of a whole lot of children and families and declaring it off limits. And of course, in terms of this show, labor history, of course. I don't want people to be teaching kids about how the work, the weekend came about all the various protections of Social Security, OSHA, 40-hour week, all these things were won by militant action. As Utah Phillips writes somewhere, they were paid for with people's blood. But now we're being told that we can't teach about that school. Okay, so that was Pete Seeger. Let's see, let's go back. We had Pete Seeger with uh, What Did You Learn in School Today? What Did You Learn in School? Or that Albert King with his rather humorous approach. <laughs> Not so <coughs> humorous. About his job. And union movement. Radio Labor, and a pretty frank discussion about the shortage of teachers in Denver. Who wouldn't want to go into? Who would want to go into teaching?
you're going to be blamed for anything that's wrong. Okay, this is the B, and you're listening to Lady and Labor and Love Radio. And uh, we've got a spot to play today. One of our sponsors is San Jalisco, restaurant here in the Mission. And here's how it goes. Como México no hay dos, como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Ibarra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Come on, what's your favorite? Enchiladas? Tacos? Chilaquiles? A birria to die for? Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Van Ness, in the very heart of the mission. San Jalisco, where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, very good. And check that out. Go on down to go on down to 20th and South Van Ness. Bob Dylan. Back in a minute, we're, our next feature is about the free speech fight in San Diego, year 
Before I say goodbye, if I don't love you, baby, I swear I, I hope to die. about one of those things, one of those struggles that we referred to. Things that were won by blood, jail time, torture, murder. This is the San Diego Free Speech or less of Members of the Industrial Workers of the World, the IWW, and their allies in labor and the community engaged in a pitched battle against a city ordinance that banned public speaking in the area around 5th and E Streets in downtown San Diego. During the course of this struggle, many were arrested, beaten, and even killed for asserting their rights to public speech and assembly, for the simple right to stand on a soapbox and speak. While repression shut down the soapboxes at Fifth and E temporarily, the right to free speech was eventually restored to San Diegans in 1915 when the ban was overturned and legal picketing was established as a basic right. I'm a stranger here, just bloating your town. 
I've been uh, assaulted four times down here. I got a ticket for honking my horn, five seconds in solidarity with uh, these brothers with the labor, and that was uh, illegal use of the horn. So our free speech uh, rights are being quashed here. The fight 100 years ago was very much about that top percent, you know, Spreckles and the people who actually controlled San Diego through the police and through the city council were able to really suppress speech, and we're seeing that happen again here. And so, you know, people were complaining about how, how an encampment looks or how people smell or um, what, what kind of things are going on there. It, it's very similar to what was going on there. There were safety and, and health hazards. Well, it's the same excuses they used 100 years ago. to work like other folks do. How can I get a job when you're holding down to? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a again. Hallelujah, give us a hand down to revive us. San Diego around the turn of the century was run by real estate developers and boosters and led in large part by John D. Spreckles. And their goal was to develop San Diego primarily as a retirement community for wealthy and well-to-do retirees from the Midwest and the East Coast who would move to San Diego and live on small, subdivided, irrigated properties developing the local citrus industry. San Diego was a small backwater. Um, it was a city that was trying to define itself against the two huge cities to the north, Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it really was a, a backwater of real estate interests and sort of get-rich-quick people, people coming for their health, people coming for the climate, um, people coming for a new start. So we have a city here who deliberately constructed itself as a postcard and has jealously guarded that image for almost its entire span. One way of thinking about the, the Panama, California exposition of 1915 is as a kind of coming out party for San Diego. So essentially what you had was a utopian vision for the elites that drew on the kind of California mission fantasy of the past to pre present a kind of romantic backdrop for the Anglos of the present to come and uh, create a San Diego that fit the Booster's vision. It had a, a gorgeous climate. It was next to the ocean. A lot of elites to the north, Hollywood rich folks, came down to San Diego to partake of its climate and of its um, pleasures. Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Norman came down to make a film about the exposition.
San Diego in the turn of the century was something close to one-man town, even more than Los Angeles. John Spreckles uh, controlled almost every industry and uh, was opposed by a small group of progressives, some of them famous, and, and by a small uh, branch of the, of the Socialist Party. He came from a moneyed family that had made their money in San Francisco. Uh, there were sugar barons in Hawaii. Um, he had real estate interests, railroad interests. He ran the union and had his hand in much of San Diego's economic and political uh, machinery. The other competing elite during this period was George Marston, uh, perhaps a much more tolerant uh, version of San Diego's elite, uh, a proponent of the city beautiful, uh, someone who supported, you know, the rights of free speech of those people who disagreed with him. Um, and, and really, you look at the two of them as, as kind of two possible visions of San Diego. Um, Marston's was the version of San Diego that lost that battle. Spreckles was the version of San Diego that won, and a much heavier-handed version of the San Diego elite. Conditions of labor in San Diego at the turn of the century were divided on ethnic and racial fault lines. Um, Mexican-American labor, in large part with the economic and social dislocations that led to the Mexican Revolution, had already precipitated large immigrant flows across the border. And San Diego developers, especially John D. Spreckles, had primarily utilized Mexican labor to undercut the wages of local white laborers and divide the workforce against itself. Work was um, very difficult. Most workers were paid um, barely what we would call a living wage in today's terms to be able to reproduce and support their families. Um, many workers ended up being unable to marry because they could not support and raise a family. Whenever I get all the money I earn, the boss will be broke and to work he must turn. Hallelujah, Bob. Hallelujah, Bob again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. In the American West, in the, in the early 20th century, agriculture still dependent on an enormous army, 100,000 strong, basically a male, a single male bachelor uh, workers uh, of various ethnicities. And they harvested everything from oranges in Southern California to wheat on the Great Plains. And then during the winter, they would hole up in the skid rows of Western cities. And the Wobblies, of course, all of whom were experts in writing the uh, lines and rods, uh, uh, hobos, organized in the field and they organized in the hobo camps. But the greatest concentration of, of migrant workers was in the skid rows during the winter. So it was absolutely essential to the organization of this working class uh, to be able to hold meetings and to be able to stand on a soapbox. I think one of the things that was really important about the IWW was the fact that they were willing to take in anyone. They were interested in not only people that were American citizens, but people that were you know, involved in migrant labor. A significant aspect of the IWW was the recognition of the need to organize workers across borders, across barriers, and ultimately uniting the working class that was itself uh, 
largely immigrant or the children of immigrants. Free speech fights uh, involving both the Socialist Party and the IWW began around 1907 in Seattle and a uh, short fight, I believe, in San Francisco. And then to harvest centers uh, like Spokane on the Wheat Plains, uh, Missoula, Montana. And then eventually came to Fresno when the IWW began to organize workers in the Central uh, Valley. Stockton, there was a big free speech fight. The most famous of all, of course, uh, occurred in San Diego in 1912. And the free speech fight in San Diego, some believe, was precipitated um, at the agitation of General Harrison Gray Otis, who was the owner of the Los Angeles Times, who came to San Diego for a meeting in November of 1911 to suggest to the city fathers of San Diego that they repress free speech like Los Angeles just had out of concern that labor agitation would prevent the development of the city along the lines that the city fathers desired. One of the precipitating factors of the San Diego free speech fight was that the IWW had decided to cross the color line and organize Mexican-American workers in San Diego. In 1910, they had organized the workers of the San Diego Consolidated Gas and Electric Company, who primarily shoveled coal for the power plants owned by John D. Spreckles. And um, they had successfully won a strike and a pay raise and the IWW in late 1911, early 1912, was in the process of organizing also the construction trades and building workers and the local city public works crews, which were also mostly primarily Mexican-American workers. It was here at the intersection of 5th and E it was the ground zero of the San Diego free speech fight. And here what the Wobblies did was set up soapboxes on the ground and stand up and give speeches such as, fellow workers and friends, how come you've got nothing and Spreckles has everything? It's time to join the one big union and take over the means of production. What happened as a result of this is it outraged the city's father, so Spreckles and his allies in the city council ended up passing an ordinance banning singing and speaking on the streets. Once the city passed ordinance 4623, which banned speaking in the congested district of town, which nobody honestly believed was a congested district. The uh, people who felt that their speech was being repressed decided that they were going to nonviolently and passively resist by getting up and speaking anyways and risk arrest to challenge the law. Many who got up maybe made it through reading the beginning of the Declaration of Independence before they were pulled down off the soapbox by the police and arrested. And they were very quickly and immediately charged not with violating the ordinance, but with conspiracy to violate the ordinance, which would be a felony charge. And then this ban was met with resistance by the IWW. There were hundreds of people arrested, taken off of soapboxes. As soon as they said, fellow workers and friends, they filled the jails. And then this was followed by a round of vigilante violence. The Wobblies were the last people you wanted to put in jail cells. Uh, for one thing, they drove the jailers nuts. They were constantly singing and chanting. And they developed a whole repertoire uh, of tactics and things called like building, I think it was called building the battleship uh, in the cell. 
to continue the resistance. And even when they were hosed down or they were taken out and beaten them, uh, this was a component in their, uh, in their victories. They simply morally were stronger. Conditions in the jails were awful, yet the IWW kept coming. That really was the hallmark of the IWW's free speech fight. It was the ability that when repression was the greatest and when the jails were full, still hundreds of people came from all over the country you know, to go to jail, to be beaten on the head, um, to risk the vigilantes. So in San Diego, you had business leaders, known champions of, of progress and business and all those things coming out in support of the workers who were being repressed and of their freedom of speech right. Uh, that had the effect of uh, lots of other people besides workers uh, buying into the notion that people shouldn't be brutally repressed just for speaking out. George Marston, a local businessman, had actually advocated for the city to find an for the protesters to be able to gather together and be able to be heard as well as not create a traffic jam of stingers because that was a huge problem. And it's no coincidence that it's his youngest daughter, Helen, who goes on to found the ACLU of San Diego in 1933. Abram Sauer, who was the editor of the San Diego Herald, had published an editorial that criticized the vigilante violence and he was kidnapped by a group of vigilantes who took him out into a remote area of town, hung him on a tree with his toes dangling just above the ground, and threatened his life if he spoke about it at all or published his newspaper ever again in San Diego. Another critical figure in the IWW free speech fight was the Reverend George Woodby. George Woodby was born a slave in the 1850s in Tennessee and came to California after a period of political activism for both the Republican and Democratic parties, after which he became disillusioned and became a socialist and a minister in the Black Baptist Church. He came to San Diego in 1902 and was among the most active of the socialist agitators here in San Diego and was a regular figure on Soapbox Row. When the free speech fight began, he was among the first of the arrestees and one of the leaders of the San Diego Free Speech League. Oh, I went to a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the thing. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. I try to teach political science from an activist point of view. I think that um, this particular event, the free speech fight in San Diego, is an excellent vehicle for explaining ideas of democracy, um, ideas of um, you know, radical action, a radical history that often many of our students have never heard of. The free speech fight gives them a local vision, and it's a vehicle for us to make that discussion kind of come to life. They can walk around downtown and see the places where people spoke, like Emma Goldman and others. It was here in 1912 where Emma Goldman and her lover Ben Reitman came to San Diego on the train to speak. When they got off the train, they were met at the station by a mob of women screaming, give us the anarchist murderess, we'll tear out her guts. The crowd was so seemingly dangerous that Goldman and Reitman had to be escorted up Broadway to the U.S. Grant Hotel. This image is really striking because here we have a woman anarchist coming to support the free speech fight, being met by other women on the other side of, 
of a class divide, I suppose, Goldman was, was coming to speak to and for working class voices. And it seems to me that the women who met her at the station, that they would go out of their way to meet her at the station, were there to protect their own interests. That a more egalitarian society would cut into their privilege as what kept women or, or whatever it is that they, they were. Once at the hotel, Goldman negotiated with Mayor Wadham and Police Chief Wilson for the right to speak from a second story window to the mob assembled across the street in the park. During this negotiation, Reitman was kidnapped by vigilantes, taken north to, to a place near Penasquitos, forced to run the gauntlet, tortured horribly. He had IWW burned into his buttocks with a cigar. They tried to tar and feather him, and they also tried to sodomize him. What's interesting to me about this is that rather than taking Goldman north and tarring and feathering and raping her, they instead took her, her partner, her companion, her male companion. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but uh, it, is, it was a way, it ended up terrorizing Reitman so that when they came back in 1913 and still weren't allowed to speak, when she came back in 1915, he was unable to set foot in San Diego again. The incredible violence and terrorism of the free speech fight on the part of the vigilantes and the, and the, the powers that be in San Diego during this period is interesting because you could have argued that they could have just said, go ahead and speak on the soapbox. There's not many IWW members in San Diego. We'll just ignore you and eventually you'll go away. So really what was going on here was not, there was no real legitimate threat of a revolution happening in San Diego in 1912. So the violence was really more about a deep-seated anxiety on the part of the elites and those who were perhaps aligned with the elites, wanted to be part of that, that they didn't want San Diego to be the kind of city that had a militant, radical, well-organized working class. Um, I think there's two reasons why there was so much brutality in the San Diego free speech fight. One has to do with the politics of the progressive era. While the progressive era sought in many ways to change the morality of politics in the United States, it sought to change the morality of politics in a way that did not change the established political economic order. And there was a lot of anxiety due to the changing relationship of both gender and ethnic relations. Uh, women had just obtained the vote in California at this time, and San Diego was also experiencing the beginning of large-scale Mexican migration in the aftermath of the outset of the Mexican Revolution, which upset the uh, notion that many white conservative San Diegans from the Midwest and the East held of a utopia on the ocean. I teach women's issues in the American political process at San Diego State, and not many of our students there are aware of you know, the, the impact that women, although they were a minority, and those that were participating in the free speech fight here in San Diego, the impact that they had um, in really challenging social and gender norms, in speaking out and putting themselves on the line, and contradicting much of the kind of you know, um, rhetoric of the day about women not participating or not believing in this fight. I think the second critical reason why there was so much brutality during the San Diego free speech fight was because the IWW in their stated politics and in their actual practice 
cross the color line and purposefully tried to destroy the Jim Crow system of labor that was being developed in the Southern California at that time, which unlike the Southeast and the Southwest was developed on Mexican labor as an underclass. The extremity of the violence has always puzzled me in the vigilante's response to the free speech fight and to the wobblies, um, to the activists uh, who they pulled off the streets and terrorized. It's so over the top. It's so um, incredible that, that people would be kidnapped, uh, driven north, and so horribly maimed and abused and subjected to often sexual torture as well as being beaten and left for dead. Just the very thought of there being a kind of parity between classes, between races, between men and women, um, sent these, these, these men into such an almost sexual panic. Um, actually, it wasn't almost a sexual panic. In, in many cases, it, it was, had to have been a full-blown one for some of the things that they did to people's bodies. It's important to emphasize that the IWW is probably the most nonviolent labor organization in American history. American workers have a long and noble tradition of fighting back with arms if need be. But the IWW very early on uh, <clears throat> recognized that when you're organizing the most powerless workers, migrant workers, homeless workers, uh, nonviolence, not as a, a moral principle, but as a strategy, was the most effective. And though they were calumniated and associated with violence, in fact, the IWW pioneered uh, so much of the passive resistance later used by the anti-war movement and by the civil rights movement. While repression shut down the soapboxes at Tiffany temporarily, the right to free speech was eventually restored to San Diegans in 1915 when the ban was overturned and legal picketing was established as a business license. Today, anyone who enjoys the right to assemble, protest, and speak in public in San Diego has the Free Speech League of the Progressive Era to thank for fighting for, to maintain the basic rights of all San Diegans. And in fact, nationally, the San Diego free speech fights are the beginning of the historical record of the ACLU, or at least it's the case that the earliest documents in the National Archives of the ACLU is 400 pages about the San Diego free speech fight. Well, it's funny because when we started to plan for our 100th celebration of the IWW fights, Occupy wasn't yet happening. And so we were talking about free speech in, in almost a um, situation that was one which we had won. And so um, we were going to celebrate. We were going to ask the city council to uh, apologize for the very oppressive laws that they had passed here in San Diego and really celebrate the fighting of those laws and labor's role in that battle. And it's funny, over the last few months, of course, a new battle has emerged, and, and a new battle over the right to, uh, to, to assemble and the right to speak. And so it's, it's timely, of course, to once again take on the, the structure of San Diego. We will not let the 1% divide us. Right. We will not let them pit the unemployed against the employed. That's right. The homeless. 
think one of the most important things about the Occupy movement has been bringing about a language that most Americans had prior to this not understood. Um, really, discussions of rich and poor, the idea of disparity of wealth, um, seeing real true inequality and understanding ways of actually discussing it, um, even in the mainstream, to a degree that hasn't been occurring prior to that. So that's why the Labor Council is involved with this. Um, as far as Occupy, we thought it was great and, and endorsed it immediately because we've been talking about income inequality for for oh, well over um, the last few years and to get the kind of attention that Occupy has by talking about who really caused this economic crisis, you know, it being the banks and Wall Street and not our third grade teachers, not our college professors, not our trash truck drivers. We think that's important and it's an important thing to continue to highlight. You know throughout history the IWW was huge down here and working with the Wobblies across the border over in Mexico, this is at the turn of the century, people died down here. Uh, that was a three year struggle just to get some of the illegal municipal codes they had against workers' rights and people being able to live free and, and secured and having First Amendment rights here. It took them three years to get through, but ultimately they did. They were victorious. We're sure this movement is going forward as well. One percent is mighty powerful. It's not going to be an easy struggle, but we're here for the distance and uh, we're growing. Every time they crush us, we come out like this the day after. It's encouraging now the broad spectrum, political spectrum of people who look back on the free speech fights and thank labor for bringing about greater free speech, who recognize that what happened was wrong. Um, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives all recognize the value of free speech, and that's worth um, celebrating. One song that I want to play now see if we can get Nina Simone up here. <coughs> Nina Simone. be 
people can watch while I'm scrubbing these floors and I'm scrubbing the floors while you're gawking. Maybe once you tip me and it makes you feel swell in this crummy southern town and this crummy old hotel, but you'll never guess to who you're talking. No, you couldn't ever guess to who you're talking. Then one night there's a scream in the night and you wonder who could that have been? And you see me kind of grinning while I'm scrubbing. And you say, what she got to grin? I'll tell you, there's a ship, the black freighter, with a skull on its masthead will be coming in.
noon by the clock and so still at the dock you can hear far gone miles away and in that quiet Was Nina Simone, later manifestation, Nina Black Freighter from uh, Three Penny Opera, Kurt Vile and Rachel Sweat. About time for us to leave. Remember, one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Stay tuned now for Scott Walker and Flat Black Plastic. And remember, San Alisco, corner of 20th and Manette, one of our sponsors here. Okay, let's get on with it. Have a good week and good work. Words may white, and thin even to grotesqueness, thin with the intensity of that expression of firmness. So now we're searching for the magic frequency, and we start with a hundred hertz. Human torture. I saw that the decrees of what to me was fate were still issuing from their lips. I saw them arise with a deadly locution. I saw them fashion the symbols of my name.
us all Full of the faith that the dark past has taught us Sing a song Full of the hope that the present has brought us Facing the rising sun
Admit they have a rockin' band 